1: We have a problem when it comes to race. The problem is that we don't like to think of it as a problem. This is true in many places, but in my home country, Australia, it's really a problem. Instead, we use words like diversity and inclusion. We like to think of ourselves as multicultural. Or we stack the word racism in and amongst a list of other identity descriptors. Gender, sexuality, ableism, and racism. We do almost anything to prevent ourselves from having a direct conversation about race. Today's Changemaker Chat is with Gloria Tabby. Gloria has spent more than a decade working on questions of race in the workplace. In her early working life, she experienced plenty of racism at work, and she has been drawn into doing something about it. She has written books about race, and she specialises in a social analysis of race. In summary, Gloria is not afraid to talk about racism. In this chat, we talk about what it means to think and act based on the need for racial equality. This is a conversation that needs a bigger audience in Australia, and it's probably pretty useful for most other places as well. So let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. You can find out more about Changemakers on our website, where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Gloria, it is a delight to have you here on Changemakers. What a beautiful privilege to be here with you, Amanda. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited about this conversation. I think this is a conversation that plenty of change makers and would-be changemakers and kind of everyone else in Australia and beyond, it's going to be an important one for them to listen to because it's we're going to be digging into some tricky issues that not enough people take seriously but you take seriously in your work and I think that we have a lot to learn I have a lot to learn too so we always start our conversations with this with this question uh gloria i was wondering if you could could share with me and and our listeners what kind of change maker are you what you know what do you do that seeks to cause change in the world that's
0: really an interesting question and Change makers are supposed to be visionary, agitating, the status quo. So that makes me a bit nervous answering this question. But um, the change I want to see or make in the world is not just out there in a the vacuum. I want to make a change that impacts me personally. But also in the country that I now call home Australia. So, the First Nation peoples, peoples that look like me, and all other racialized peoples, as well as what people will say white people, because my family is a makeup of. Black people and white people, by marriage, half my family are white. So these conversations are quite important to to me in a broader sense. And my deeply held moral belief, you know, the right and the wrong as a human was severely violated in the workplace years ago, and it still happens. And it was through you know, bullying, racism and discrimination. I got tired and I, I was traumatised and broken hearted, you know, because everything I believe about humanity was challenge. And that's what has got me to where I am now. And, and to be referred to as a change maker is quite remarkable because that's not how I set out to be. I'm a very introverted person, my family would tell you, and so... I, I felt the need to speak up because of the things that I was experiencing, but also seeing witness in our communities.
1: I know that when we say the word "change maker," it connotates the idea of some sort of superhero with a cape running around or, you know, Nelson Mandela getting out of decades in jail. But, you know, like I like to think of it as something that anyone could be. And I love that this conversation we're going to have is going to be one About how that is a journey you've gone on, forged through the 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 sort of catalyst of of discrimination. But it's you know to me that that is what change making is about. It's actually something that anyone can access, but being skilled at it is is the challenge. Like that's the trickiness. But actually, being able to make change is almost like being able to be human. It's something that we're all capable of. It's just. Um, sometimes life throws a curveball to some of us in a way that invites us to, to make change. And I love that. Um, well, I don't love that you've had to experience all the things you've had to experience that have brought you here to to the point of being a change maker. but I am honoured that you're going to be with us to share some of that experience. So, I mean, the obvious question is you've hinted at some of the why that sits behind why you do what you do. But I wonder if you could share, like, you know, our listeners can't, See you. They don't know know much about you. If you could just give us a bigger, go back as far as you can that makes sense. Tell us the bigger picture about your story, Gloria, and how you came to be to be working on 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 questions around race and racial equity.
0: I migrated
1: to Australia
0: in the nineties, so I like people to visualise the night early nineties. Even back then, Australia was becoming a multicultural country, so you could go to places and see different people of of all backgrounds. And the idea was to go to university and having come from a country, Ghana, which was previously colonised by the British, until... 1957. So that's not very long ago. That's only 64 years ago, Ghana gained independence from the British rule. And by the time they left, the, the country was quite in tattis, if if you would like to say that. Resources has been plundered, theft of resources. And so the country was at the brink of breaking and, and we've ridden with poverty. So young person growing up in a country like that, because sometimes people ask you where you're from, that's why I'm sharing this story is that some of us we have to actually move out of our country in order to survive. yeah um, because we are so poor, not because we don't like to work, and so then we are we are poor. It's just because that our resources being taken away, and so we actually don't have that much to 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 go around. But not just resources, able-bodied men and women and children were also taken. Yeah, and so you might call your forefathers, you know your ancestry line, they are your forefathers. But our forefathers were made to be slaves elsewhere. And so when you look at country like Ghana where, and we share similarities to First Nation peoples of Australia, is that our, our culture is run down through oral, oral tradition. And so when all your able-bodied men, elders are taken away, how does actually culture just get passed down. And so we, we have to think about that. But anyway, we are not here to talk about the history of Ghana, but that's the country. But it's part of, of
1: your history, right? Like, I I think it's important for me to understand, for our listeners to understand that, you know, we're not ab- abstract from our ancestors. You know, they're part of us for sure.
0: That's right. And so that's where I've come from. And so, yeah, I went to university. Why did you choose Australia? Oh, because it was a a place I had a family here. Right. (laughs) And I was able to, that's a really important question because a lot of Africans moving overseas for a better world, it can be quite a tedious work in terms of, being able to even be given a visa because of the country we are coming from, often visa application is double hard for us. And so, yes, Australia was the place I could come to because I had family here who were able to um, sponsor me to come. And so that's why Australia was the country to come to. And, you know, I I had a a lovely, I have a very nice, vivid, positive experience in Australian universities. I have lectures that taught me in my undergraduate that I'm still friends with. And so this is the kind of environment I was learning. It was different when I moved from the university into the workplace, (laughs) and I think that's when um, you know, the person that you are is in question and violated, that causes you to search deeply. And so that's why I'm on this journey. Because for the long time, I actually reduce what was happening to me in terms of racism to relational issues, you know, the name calling on the streets. I knew that the racism I was experiencing on the street was awful and people do call you names on the street in Australia. It makes you angry and helpless. But then as I got older, I also noticed something else. When I'm with great friends and educated, fun-loving people, I was still faced with barriers. And, And although no one was calling me bad names, or walking the other side of the street when I'm I'm walking on the street, as a black woman in Australia, I face barriers that you know it could cost us a whole day talking about in s- securing employment, promotion, just navigating society became a, a constant battle.
1: Is is there? A, can I ask uh, just to dwell on this just for a moment because. I imagine, and for me too, some of, you know, to understand what that's like. I'm a white woman, right? I was born here, I'm middle class. This is very different from my experience. Is there an example that stands out that, that I don't know, that, that helps people understand the kind of experiences that you are facing? Yeah, it's interesting
0: because what is, I'm actually about to share is that because of my life, uh, you know, I'm married to a white male. And so my life is not just looking through a black woman's lens. I have the opportunity to see life on both sides of the coin, if you like. And of course, my sister-in-laws, my parent-in-laws who I would die for, they are all white. And so these experiences I'm sharing, it's not in a vacuum. It's not just a black woman living here with my culture and not knowing anything else. It's, it's also within my own family seeing the experiences that we all uh, have to go through and the outcomes of, of of what I get and what my sister-in-laws who are, you know, going through their own issues in surviving in different Levels of, of hardship in society, what I'm actually talking about is quite different. So I'll give you an example. When I came out of university, I I, I applied about a hundred jobs and not didn't get one interview. <laughs> so my boyfriend at the time. I was because I've had so many experiences writing job application I was writing his job application. <laughs> he is a white male, you know, who's the father of my kids. He was getting interviews left and right. Oh no. And and like I said, so you want an example, that's actually one clear example and and we were we would sit on the lounge and thinking about why you are helping me apply for these jobs. Um and, and you're not getting any interviews. And at that time, and I didn't have language to explain all of this, you know, maybe later on I'll share. I've now gone and, and learning about race. So I actually have language to explain. But the, the simple fact of my name was being called out through the recruitment process. So I wasn't even get, being called for interview just by my name, my last name, Tabi. And at the time in the 90s, I didn't know that 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 was an issue. I just did not get an interview. <laughs> so that's one example. Wow. There was also one example that was really hit home for me. Still, I didn't have the words to explain it. I graduated with ecotourism degree. That was my first degree. So environmental management and looking at tourism with a sustainable lens Now, my boyfriend at the time, who will become the father of my kids, applied for a job in that industry. (laughs) So I've got the skills. I've got the qualification. He did something completely different. I wrote the application because it was my area of of study, so I could answer all the selection criteria. He got an interview and got the job. I applied for the same job. I didn't even get an interview. <laughs> so, so it was quickly even at that time telling us that there was something that was going on yeah. that we 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 weren't aware of. We, we were in our 20s. We we didn't know what was going on.
1: Yeah, how how did I mean part of me is like, how did you start to put this together? Mm. Like how how did how did you know, like all these small and you know what could be seen as personal incidents how how did you turn and 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 see the bigness and the politics that 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 sat on you know that was guiding this constant racism, you know what I mean like just ad hoc random consistent racism mm.
0: it it was difficult, I have to say because. I didn't have language. I didn't understand. I actually blamed myself. Yeah. And this is what a lot of people that look like me do. But then eventually I did get work. And and I'll explain how I got this work, because it's really important. So there's two jobs I'll explain to help the listeners to really start visualising this issue. The first job I had was with Woolworths. So that was through university, through a family friend. So a family friend is white, and they were able to help me secure that work. It was great. It worked around my university schedule in the bakery session and I loved it because back home my mom had a bakery business and so to me it wasn't just a job it's like oh my gosh this is what I have grown up with Mm -hmm. you know with my mom bakery she employed few people and now I'm in Australia you know thousands of across the Atlantic in the country and I'm working in Woolworths in bakery. So I loved it. I took it like, you know, duck and, and water and and excel in the job. But what was interesting is because it's front facing, I'll be serving customers and there will be people that will come to the bakery session that will refuse for me to serve them. <laughs> They just oh will not God. let let me serve them, and they will wait till the the white coworker who is busy serving other people because I'm on the shift with them, and um, there will be a group that decide that I'm not going to be served bread by this black looking woman, and so then I will wait till the white person is ready, and that was the beginning of my understanding of what was going on, it's like, and it was frightening, Amanda, to be treated like that in public. It's all right for people to be racist, what they think or what they say far away, but to actually be in the workplace and someone looking straight at you and saying, I'm not going to be served by you, I would rather wait extra half an hour for that person to serve me. It was the most
1: frightening experience anyone can go through, as a young woman yeah. in Australia in the nineteen nineties, not in South Africa in mm. the nineteen sixties. Right? Like this is we think if this is a time that this country thinks of itself as modern. No. It's not, it's, it's not very loving. It's not very loving. No. Fuck. Sorry. <laughs> so, so that's one.
0: Another. So then it, eventually I had to leave a job that I've just described to you of what my mother used to do. And this job, I have to leave because I could not cope of the treatment I was receiving. And even though my manager was very supportive and I'll explain who my manager was, and I'll call him Phil. Phil was great. He was a baker that if you look him on the outside, you would judge him. He had tattoos everywhere. You couldn't see his white skin. He was covered in tattoos with earrings, rough as guts, and had, you know, But that time in the 90s used some coarse and harsh um, swear word in the workplace. But he was actually very supportive. Mm -hmm. He saw what was happening and he would counsel me and support me, put his arms around me and say, look, we love you being here. And so he could see that. But so the the racism I was experiencing was actually customers coming into the shop that were doing that to me, not the people I was working with. But in the end, those customers' experiences and the things they were projecting to me got, got to me as a young woman. Yeah. And I had to leave that job, and it was frightening. And you know what? That was my first time. I had to go on what we call now the Door Centerlink benefit because I, did, I I couldn't work because yeah. of what was happening to me my second job was working in in, in the in city and so, just picture in the city of Surrey Hills.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. So, for, for our when- overseas listeners, that's like a, a suburb that just sits on the fringe of the city. It's very trendy and cool, with lots of sort of edgy cafes and fun, interesting businesses sitting in old terrace houses, for instance. Yeah, yep. just so if people don't know it. Yep, that's where I got the job. And this job was to actually help long
0: term unemployed people. And straight away, I took to it because I could empathize with them and understand. I mean, I applied for 100 jobs and didn't get an interview. So helping long term unemployed people was like, oh, wow, what can I do to help you? And now I'll, I'll bend backwards to make sure I was supporting them. The people that were presenting unemployed. First Nation peoples, migrant peoples, people of colour who have become long-term unemployed. And so, you know, we talk about skill shortage. There are people right now in our country who are educated, cannot get work because the sign of their name or how they look or what their hair looks like. And so back in the late 90s, early 2000 is when I was working at this job. I got this job the man that interviewed me is South African coloured man I'm explaining all this to try to help listeners understand what happens in Australian Employment Services and so I was working in Employment Services the man is a coloured South African beautiful guy the manager at the time who was Chinese was moving on to Um, I think, a promotion with another organisation. So that's how I got this role. I loved it and helping people. What I noticed was that when I'm talking to employers and I don't know, my accent is very hard for you to tell that I'm African. Is that correct? I I don't know. That's what people tell me, Hmm. that when I'm talking over the phone, they can't, Tell that I'm African. So I, a young woman, helping unemployed people, sending them to job interviews. An employer get on the phone with me, Aussie as Aussie can be, Aussie company. He says to me on the phone, "Do not send any Abba to <gasps> my workplace."
1: Oh wow! It's not subtle. Far no. out.
0: This is phone call. I mean, I was shocked.
1: I actually didn't
0: know who an Abbo is. I'm an African. I've been in this country not very long. And so I had to go and speak to my manager about who is this employer referring to. And then they explained to me, I had no understanding of who Aboriginal people were. I haven't studied them. I didn't know who they were. And so here we are in Australia. We like to think that Aboriginal people do not like to work and they want to be on the dole. Guess what? They are employers in our country who do not want them in their workplaces. Yeah. So what do we want them to do? Go and tip themselves over the edge? Or what do we actually want for our First Nation people? So this is what we are dealing with. In the late 90s, I've been told not to send an ABO for a job interview, when I came home and I told my white boyfriend at the time, he was in shocked. He said Australians are very comfortable being racist and, and so this is what we're living with and it was shocking to me. And so these are the, my formative years in this country and this is where I am now. And so it's years of experiencing racism myself, witnessing racism being dished out to other people, seeing my own white family and the way in which they live their life, the way my black people live their life has just the firsthand experience has given me so much worth of knowledge. I didn't need to go to university to then go and study race, but I had to because I met a supervisor that completely changed my life and I I need to mention her name because I'm here because of her and her name is Professor Alana Lenton. Professor Lenton has done a lot of work on race overseas in UK, but she's also her work sort of go over 20 years. But a lot of people don't know her in Australia because we do not care about race. And so we don't actually know who she is. And when I met her at the university because another racism incident has happened to me, that really hurt the very core of my being by a manager. And so I had nowhere to turn and I, I it was quite trauma, traumatizing experience and i thought that by in you know in in the 2000s we've come away i took substantive time off because i wasn't going to bloody stay in the workplace and be treated like that so when i had my kids i thought i'm i'm going to take substantive time off and raise my children, which I have done beautifully, thank God. And and I have no regret. So it was like 10 years of my career I was at home bringing my kids up. And, of course, being immersed in the community, you know, I serve as executive for PNC at all my children's school. I then became a, a president of PNC. You were still working. Level.
1: You are still working. You are working for the communities. You know? For the community, <laughs> yes, but, right. you know, yes. On, tight. Yes, on Yes, yes.
0: And, and in that environment, it's interesting. I'm respected. I'm, I give speeches at school um, assemblies and things like that. But when my youngest, you know, started school and I returned to the workplace, the same Issues that I experienced back in the 90s and early tw- 20, 2000s were still around. I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it. <laughs> I thought we've dealt with this. There's a lot of talk about diversity, equity and inclusion and people of colour this, people of colour that. You know, Reconciliation Australia, the Reconciliation Action Plan Every organization. Is partaking, and so why is it that these issues are still present? That was shocking to me. That was really shocking to me. So I think I have over talked. No,
1: I think that, that you've you've given me and others a, a clear understanding of where your passion comes from. So if we were to now turn, <clears throat> you know, the, to to what you work on and. You know, I, I, I know that your key practice is around this question of racial equality, right? That we have to dig into the centre, to the heart of this question around race. Australian, Australians in particular, even more than other countries, are perhaps uneasy or unwilling to really face this head on. But tell us what do you mean, you know, what, what do you mean when you say the phrase racial equality? What is racial equality? That's a good question and I will go a little bit back before I answer that question in that
0: right now in Australia we fail to adequately explain the roots of racism or why it persists. You know, it's important for us to discover that race enables racism. Without race there's no racism. And so in Australia, when we talk about racism, race is not discussed and that's actually what is creating this issue that is is becoming persistent in our systems. So let me borrow a definition from Alana Lenton, the professor I was talking about earlier, because according to Lenton, race is a technology of power for the management of human difference. If race manages people, how does it happen? And that question we haven't really discussed in Australia, you know, because race ranks people, it categorises people, it assigns them value, it makes some people worthy of protection while others are dehumanised or even easily discarded. And we see that even in our immigration policies. You know, we do have a complex history of race in Australia, dispossession, genocide, colonialism, but it remains hidden and unrecognized. So an example, if we look at Holocaust, German is not perfect, but they've done really well of educating their population about what, you know, Holocaust was all about, in Australia, instead of talking about our history, we don't no <laughs> we push, we push it aside and push by pushing it aside it doesn't just go away with
1: multicultural it's like it's like we try and pretend that everyone's the same, yeah and equal we're equal. it's fine don't worry about it, but actually that's. If, if we've got a system that's trying to manage and, and rank human difference, pretending that we're equal is actually just going to maintain the hierarchies and the prejudice. That's exactly right. That's right.
0: We don't recognise race, but
1: it's practised systematically
0: in our laws in our economic policies, in our job processes,
1: in work, at Woolworths, like the the dozens of examples you've given are are a drop in the ocean of examples that are experienced every day. Okay. And so in order to have racial equity, because of the racial
0: structures rooted in society, equity is difficult to reach without the dedicated effort to actually understand the system of disadvantage of racialized people, like the examples I've given with our First Nation peoples. And so we actually need to go back and learn that and understand how race structures society, and we have failed to do that. You know, I have my business, as you know, a founder of Everyday Inclusion, which is, diversity, equity, and inclusion practices in organizations. Now, my lens is racial equity. And guess what? I get bypassed. I get most of my work. Now, this might shock you. Most of my work is through white women getting contracts and not being able to actually operationalize contract, and then they contract me to help them do it. Right. Organisations to this day in Australia do not engage qualified black people with the knowledge and the lived experience to actually do our diversity, equity and inclusion. And we are actually bringing this country backwards rather than forward at the moment. And it's frightening what I see out there because we have a history of the Cronulla rights. Back then in the 90s, we were as educated with Black Lives Matter and everything else like we do now. But we haven't progressed with our understanding of race to this day and half of us or our parents are born overseas. So it doesn't look good for us in Australia.
1: No, and I mean, look, what i also think is really profound in your analysis like in your, in your is is that in order for us to understand exclusion on any form we need to understand racial exclusion right so you know i've got a family full of neurodiversity right we're all neurodiverse and we've all got these different forms of exclusion happening in our lives and what i think is quite profound is how your making the argument that, you know, we could go off and try and mop up the so- kind of exclusion that, say, my son experiences at school for being autistic. But, you know, we're only going to get so far if we don't actually address the the deepest form of exclusion that we've got going on in society, which is around race. Tell, talk to us a bit about that. Yes, it, it's
0: incredible. Because in
1: society, society
0: is structured, whether we like it or not, and is divided. We have you know, gender, sexuality, we have race, we have ableism, age. Those things are always going to be a part of our lives. But research also tells us that race is the strongest category of of difference. So all the differences that we've spoken about, race is the strongest. So if we're actually going to solve exclusion problems due to differences, It's actually for our own benefit to learn about race because that will help us to solve other problems. So, in Australia, we've done very well, and you will find most institutions will have a gender division somehow. So, we've done well in investing in our understanding of gender in the last 10, 20 years in Australia. That's remarkable. So, for example, next year, organizations are to report on gender pay gap. We have language around issues with gender. It didn't just happen, mm. but sometimes we take those things for granted. These are uh, concentrated effort being made, an investment for us to now have language to explain, you know, gender inequalities when it comes to race. We have not done that. There's zero investment in us understanding race. And as the years goes on, with no investment and pushed aside, it's getting worse and worse and worse. So you can go to universities in Australia and find out that there is no race centres in those universities. When you compare this to, say, UK and US, they do have race centres do they have racial problems? Oh, yes. What does that tell us for Australia? Things will get worse because we haven't actually invested in studying race in Australia. And so that example I've just given you with gender tells you a lot about what we think is important in our country. And so we'll you know, there's nothing wrong doing gender studies. I'm saying that race is a stronger category of difference than gender. In fact, if we understand race, we'll be able to solve gender problems, but not the other way around.
1: So we don't have an enormous amount of time, but I am keen for you to like this is your this is your professional work. This is how you uh, walk in the world is to is to seek to operationalize um, a deeper understanding of race in workplaces in particular. You know, people obviously should contact your organization if they're curious, but like if, if you were to describe briefly, like, how do you do that? You know what I mean? Like, I think people are probably going, that sounds like a good idea, but how on earth do you bring that kind of knowledge and understanding to say a workplace or, or a school, you know, how would you bring that to bear? Oh,
0: uh, it's a great question. I uh, bring that to bear through courage and compassion. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bear both. Yeah, and I, I don't say this lightly. You need to have a lot of courage to do this work, but also um, to be able to share the difficult histories because that's really important. I operationalize this by helping people to understand race just like we do with gender. So I'm actually quite optimistic because just about, what, a few years ago, same-sex marriage wasn't a thing, but it is, because as a country we went on that exploration and we made ourselves, you know, to learn about this particular construct in our society, and we voted yes. So we can do it. I mean, right now there's a talk about four day a week work. I mean, who would have thought that could be something that we'll be talking about? So that gives me that optimistic view that we are capable of dealing with difficult issues and 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 getting results. So yes, that's where I start to understand race, as difficult as it can be, I make it very um break it down into little chunks so that people can understand that. And once they understand that, I then move them to the fact that because of race racial systems, we have inequality. And then I also move them through understanding equity. And I prefer people being skilled to understand equity than equality because that's what we get preached at because it's easy and simple and easy to do, you know, and that's what we do with diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, we do diversity and inclusion, but equity in the middle never
1: gets spoken about. And equity is based on the idea that we're different. And that different people yes. need different support, as opposed to equality, which is based on the idea that we're the same,
0: That's which is right. a myth. <laughs> That's exactly
1: right. But yeah, we do have a long way to
0: go, and I wish I could say that things have changed dramatically, but it's not. It's we're actually going backwards, and also a misuse of words. So like we've just explained, diversity, equity and inclusion, we just quickly go from diversity, inclusion and leave the middle out. We also talk about intersectionality and we actually don't understand what that means and leave it out. If there's one thing I want to leave here is, uh, you know, media has got a lot of responsibility. And when we are talking about race or racism, we often go straight to live experience, people that are experiencing racism, to come on the television, to come on the podcast to explain what they're going through. Really do we see the media giving to people that are actually have the the discipline, the understanding of race to come into those conversations. Mm. So if there's anything we can do now practically, is that when we are talking about issues to do with racism, we need to seek out scholars on race to lead that conversation because that's how we're going to be able to filter that knowledge across in our society. And, and the example I give with that is that most of us know someone who experienced mental health.
1: Yes, we do. That's That's what we do. Experiencing mental
0: health doesn't make us qualify as psychologists. You see the difference? And so experiencing racism doesn't qualify someone to understand race. That is a discipline on its own. So we need to start there. We need to start inviting Those that studies raised to help us unpack this conversation. And that's really, really important.
1: Yeah. In, in change-making, I like to think of it as there's a dialectic between the personal and the political. You know, I, on the mental health thing, I'm not a big fan necessarily of seeing the psychologist as the only expert. But at the same time, the idea that there is a, a, a personal lived experience expertise that's great, of course, but there's also a sort of a political or researched sort of more generalized expertise, and we need both of those things to be treasured and held to create knowledge. And if we only listen to the personal, then we we miss the political, right? Like we want we want to we want to hold the 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 personal and the sort of smaller experience with the bigger experience so people can see. Cause if it's just the personal, Gloria, like in your experience, you could be standing in Woolworths going, what the hell's going on? Right? No. What the hell's going on? It's the, it's the political story that says, oh, actually What's going on in Australia is there's a move there's is that there's dispossession genocide white Australia policy and a history a history of exclusion of people who aren't white. That's what's going on, and that's what you're experiencing, more. So, I, I really do see I like this is me just agreeing with you, I guess, but using different language to sort of go this this dialectic that you're talking about is is so important in the process of change because if we only see the personal, we miss the political.
0: Well, it becomes. Shareings of stories.
1: Yeah.
0: It helps us, and and don't get me wrong, live experience gives us a window into the experiences that we're going through. But that alone is not enough to move us from hearing the experiences into knowing precisely what to do about it. Mm -hmm. When live experience was coined, it was coined by a black psychiatrist actually, live experience first came into our vocabulary through Fanon. And he used that, and this is what I was talking about, misuse of language like intersectionality. Woke is one of them, but live experience has been butchered. It's not actually what it's meant to be. Fanon was explaining to his patients that what you're experiencing, you're not going crazy because it's racism, be really aware of your live experience. So you do not blame yourself of the things that you're going through as you being delusional that they are real. That's where live experience come in. It was never used for us to use it as a ways of dealing with the issue. And so see how language and our understanding of it is used nowadays. So it, it doesn't help us to move on we need the actual understanding of the structure in order to dismantle and you probably heard the word dismantle that's actually what we need mm. we need to rethink like we are rethinking how we do five days a week in in workplaces we need to rethink how society is
1: organized live experience is not going to get us anyway well also not only is it not enough intellectually to be able to understand the problem, only having people with lived experience is not going to be enough politically to build a movement, right? We need a broad-based, interesting, creative movement where people change in the process of their relationships. I think of, I think of that in terms of even, even even, feminism, the beautiful women's movement, right? We also have to change men. Men need to be allies as well. You know, so if, if the movement is defined only by people with lived experience, it's too, it's just going to be, not enough, as well as or being narrow. yeah, in so many different ways. It's so helpful to talk with you about this. Okay, final question, Gloria. Final quick reflective question. So you've done an enormous amount of work in this space, and we have only got a glimpse of of some of that powerful work. But you know, what is what is the biggest learning? What is something you know if, if you what is something that really sticks with you about mm. about making change from from all of this work around uh, racial equity?
0: That the work is huge. <laughs> and I'm not saying this facetiously, you know, as a black woman with lived experience that we've talked about with research, I still struggle to get those big ticket contracts that some of my colleagues get just simply by being white. And so the work is huge. Organisations still prefer someone with, you know, similar backgrounds to to be doing this work, even though they don't have the skills. And so it, it is hard, but I'm also optimistic. Like I have said, I'm optimistic that we are a country that is developing and we've gone through a lot of changes and some of the most difficult conversations like same sex marriage, we were able to go through it. So in the same Grain, I know that race, we will get there. We will eventually get there. When is the question? And, you know, we can't get there quick enough, especially around this time. If we were racially conscious society, the referendum and the voice will take a completely different shape. And it's really difficult to see where the stories is going. No one I know that is skilled in race ever been invited to be talking about this, and it's almost, you know, we're almost to the end of the line. And so it is really difficult to sit and watch how backward we are when it comes to race and just sit still and just let it unfold I mean, but what can you do? You, you just hope and pray that, you know, we will get to a point where we can publicly talk about race just like we do about gender and say things like gender pay gap reporting and things like that, that we will have language around race to do exactly that, to move us forward. I know it's, it's a long-term, it's increment, incremental, I understand that. And so self-education, compassion, like I talked before, and willingness to confront our own biases and privileges along the way And, and to be a change agent to seek to understand the problem but also use the privilege to dismantle a little bit of those structures around us. And so I always think think locally and then go broadly and nationally and we can all do a little bit.
1: Yes, we can. We can go, we can think, we can take our small experience and we can build a bigger picture about how we can make the kind of change that's required to make those experiences different. Gloria, thank you so much for being with us. I hope listeners, if you're interested in this, check out the show notes. We're going to have all the details about Gloria's work if you want to follow up. And I, I, I don't just wish you the best. I feel like allied in in action, it'll be important for us to be able to, for white people like me, to be able to take on the kind of work that you do in the work that we do too. So thank you for being with us.
0: Oh, it's been great chat. Thank you, Amanda. Great listener with great questions. Oh, pleasure. Really appreciate being with you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. This is Series 7, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Changemakers' audio producer is Jules Wilgrove. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy Dash Lab. Like us on Facebook, Instagram and threads at Changemakers Podcast. We're on Twitter slash X whatever at Changemakers99 and I'm there too, kind of, at Amanda Tatz. And you can also check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at the content from our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.